Welcome back to The Pilgrim Soul, a podcast about the journey of faith in the world of today. I'm your host, Juliana, and this week I'm very excited to be joined by a special guest, Damian Basich, for a discussion about education. Fundamental questions about education have been really brought to the forefront during the pandemic. Questions about what education means, what is and isn't essential to education, and where to find hope and opportunity when so much seems to be going wrong. So we're really excited to explore these questions today with our guest. Damien, welcome to The Pilgrim Soul. Thanks, Juliana. It's great to be here. We're very grateful that you could be here to share your wisdom and your experiences. Why don't we start if you could just share a little bit about yourself, who you are, and what you do. Okay. Yeah, that's always a difficult <laughs> question. But who am I? I'm, once again, I'm Damien Basich. I'm an educator. I, I live here in California, Northern California. I am a um, professor of Spanish language literature at San Jose State University, which is outside of San Francisco. It's middle of Silicon Valley. And for the last uh, eight years, I've been chair of the Department of World Languages and Literatures. And, and we teach 12 to 13 different languages in any given semester. Wow. Other than that, I'm, I'm married and got a family and live a normal life. Thank you. And for this podcast, we should probably also mention that you belong to the movement of communion and liberation, which, as our listeners know, was the source of inspiration for this podcast and a consistent point of reference for us as we work through these topics of discussions and that we'll be turning to again today. And so, you know, you have experience of education as a teacher in the classroom, deep experience there as a parent, and of course, as we all do, as one who has been and is educated. Um, and I think that that introduction is helpful beyond helping us learn who you are, because it already starts to hint at the different aspects of education that we hope to explore today and moves us well into what I think is the essential starting point, which is to clarify the scope of this discussion. So what do we even mean by education? And this might sound formalistic, like it's the lawyer in me coming out, because when we hear the word education, immediately images come to mind. It's not a word that we typically need to find. But I think that today we'd like to explore a broader conception of education than that immediate first image. And particularly through the lens of the work of Father Luigi Giussani, the founder of Communion and Liberation, because in his work and in our discussion, we don't just mean the experience of a student in a classroom with a textbook and a pencil in front of him. So can you explain this a little bit further, um, this more comprehensive understanding in order to help ground our discussion? Yeah. You know, the thing about Jasani is that he wasn't a he wasn't an influencer or a, a guru like we might be used to. So he gave a lot of definitions of things, but they weren't ones that he necessarily invented. They were just ones that he he found persuasive. So he always talked about education as introduction to reality in its entirety. So it was much more than training on a subject or analysis of a topic. Mm -hmm. It was really, how does this fit in with everything else? This thing that you're touching, that you're experiencing, how does it connect to the whole? And for me, that was one of the things that really sort of attracted me to, 
to him and to the movement or whatever you want to call it that he started was it seemed connected that everything was connected to everything else. And that to me was attractive. That was kind of what I was looking for in my own life is what what does everything have to do with everything else? What's the big picture? So, and that is not a definition that that he came up with. It's a definition that goes back thousands of years that connects reason and wonder and introspection and all of those things. So, so that's my understanding of what education is for him. And it's my understanding of education because it works for me too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an excellent summary. An introduction to reality. I'm struck by both the beauty and the truth of living that way. And it evokes in me a real desire to follow that for myself. And I think it's important to the point you're making about it being a longstanding tradition in the church to see this faith and reason as interwoven and as enriching the other and to push for a coherent vision of life. You know, the church's educational institutions date back to the second century. St. John Paul II describes them as born from the heart of the church and flowing from the command of Christ to go, therefore, make disciples of all nations teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And the reason it was important for the church to do so through her own institutions is precisely a desire for this coherence that you're mentioning. Again, to quote St. John Paul II, he describes the aim of Catholic education as not only communicating facts, but also transmitting a coherent, comprehensive vision of life. Because the truths contained in that vision can liberate students. That's powerful and maybe can maybe provide another framing for what we mean by education, which is a coherent, comprehensive vision of life. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And the thing is, is we are fortunate to have had John Paul II to sort of put those things into perspective. Because if you talk to people who've been through Catholic education, Catholic school system, you're going to find a lot whose recollection of that experience has to do with nuns hitting them with rulers <laughs> or all sorts of things that don't necessarily have to do with that. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is the interesting thing about the the church's ideal. It's because it's an ideal. Mm-hmm. And the nitty gritty is each individual, each of us, educators and non-educators following that ideal and trying to make it into reality because that is exactly true. The thing is, how often is that our experience, right? And so for me, in fact, growing up as somebody who grew up in a Catholic household and who went to Catholic schools as an elementary and primary school student and who also went to public high school, for example, I had a few different experiences of Catholic schools, especially in the 70s and 80s, right? And that was a crazy time, <laughs> as, as people who lived through it probably know, and it was anything but, you know? But all it takes is to meet one person, literally one individual, who lives that outlook that JP2 was talking about, 
and who challenges other people to live that outlook, and you're suddenly hooked, right? Or at least you realize that, oh, wow, a door has opened to something that I didn't, I didn't know was there. And that's kind of what happened to me in my late teens and uh, um, like my freshman year in college. Mm, yeah, that's really interesting. I've definitely seen in my own experience too, unfortunately, how these, the ideal can deviate from what we see in practice. Can you explain a little bit more about this turning point for you and who this person was and what she, he or she was doing that provoked you to turn to education in this way? Yeah, it's a funny thing because it's like a story. It is a story that goes back a long ways and goes forward a long ways. And so you sort of have to pick an arbitrary point, right? And so for me, I would say the arbitrary point was for a year, I went to a really, a really small, isolated, isolationist Catholic school, private Catholic school that had been founded by some families. And during that time, you know, a couple of things happened that were turning points that only looking back now do I understand. The first was this old set of Catholic encyclopedias that they had on a shelf in the classroom. And most of my life, I wasn't a good student. I had easily distracted. <laughs> and so I would just pull copies of this Catholic encyclopedia, the old one from like 1911, and just flip through it. And I'd find out all these crazy things I never knew. Like, I don't know, that in Ethiopia, they did this. In the third century, that they used to do this, etc. So all these kind of things started to like make me think, wow, there's a lot more to Christianity than I, that I knew, just kind of historically speaking and culturally speaking. And then... Then we went on a field trip one time up to a monastery way up in, in the woods of Northern California, an area that's mostly now known for growing pot. <laughs> but there was also a, a Byzantine Rite monastery there. And we walked in. It was during the day, midday, and all these monks had come in for midday prayer. And you got to imagine, you know, it's this small little chapel, Byzantine chapel, dark, smelling of incense. And here's all these dudes in flannel shirts and jeans who had just come in from their hard manual work and they were they were in the church prostrating themselves in front of the the icon screen and singing in an amazing haunting harmony mm. right in fact if you looked at them today you would think oh they're just hipsters right they're a bunch <laughs> of guys with big beards and, and flannel shirts and jeans you could see you know walking in any brew pub in, in the pacific northwest but these were monks in their work clothes because they're poor. They live poverty. And once again, to me, it was like, wow, that there is a whole intensity about Christianity, about living that I didn't know existed. And so that sort of put me on this, this sort of trek to try and uh, understand a little bit more about that, about this Eastern church. Um, and it was when I was going to a, a Byzantine Rite Liturgy in Berkeley one Sunday that... There was this other family sitting in the pews there, and the the, the husband kind of had long hair and a beard, and he, he really looked like a Berkeley hippie, like the classic Berkeley hippie, you would think. And after Mass, people that were standing outside of Mass invited us to go have pizza, a uh, local pizza parlor. We said, all right, sure, I don't know anybody. And they were talking, and, and they were passing out a flyer, and the flyer was a quote from the poet Charles Peggy which said, he is here, he is here on, on the first day, as it was 2,000 years ago, something to that extent. Mm. 
Hmm. And that, and I'm leaving out a lot of details here <laughs> in the interest of time, but that like kind of blew me away because in 18 years of being raised as a, as a Catholic and I had never had this concept that Jesus Christ was present now, just like he was 2000 years ago. That was a revelation that that, that kind of thing could be possible. And we came from a devout Catholic family, mind you. So that piqued my interest. That started me wanting to know some of these people a little bit better, mm. right? And there were other things later on, but but that was really the thing that this I could have that same experience really that the apostles had right now. Mm-hmm. That was the real turning point. That once again, if you had asked me the day after I met them, I would not have chalked that up as an important experience. But you know, years later, looking back you realize, no, that was a pivotal moment. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, that's a fascinating story. And I think it really illuminates to the initial definition that you gave, education as an introduction to reality as a whole, because the experience of education that you're describing came through a series of encounters, of moments where you came up against something outside of you. First, it was the encyclopedia, the monks, the relationship with a family at mass. And this is something else that Giussani really emphasizes and observes is that we develop through these relationships and through contact with something, some, someone else. And in this way, maybe paradoxically, become more and more ourselves. You know, you discovered more about yourself. You discovered more about your relationship with Christ and who Christ was and how he was working in your life through these encounters with something outside of yourself. Yeah, and in fact, it began to open up the possibility for me of uniting the two worlds of my life, which Mm. were the world of Christianity, of Catholicism, of my family, of the things that I grew up with and had learned, and the world of everything else, like my friends at public high school, my, my interests, my career aspirations, all of those things. And I think that if we're talking about Father Giussani, he would point out something that's really important. It's also something that Pope Francis pointed out in a, in a talk he gave that I was translating a while back, which is the aspect of the openness of disposition. I think about all these things, there was a, a certain curiosity that sort of drew me to each thing. Because of this curiosity about something, you get pulled into something else that you weren't expecting to meet. Pope Francis was talking about the experience of John Henry Newman, Cardinal Newman, who was this great apologist for Christianity, wrote all sorts of texts about, you know, why Catholicism, Christianity is true and the historical foundations for it, etc. But he could never break through to his brother, his brother who was an atheist. And it was because his brother, his brother knew him as his brother and wasn't, wasn't having it. You know, he wasn't interested. He wasn't open to that. And so it was like, for all of Newman's brilliance, he couldn't get through to his brother. Mm -hmm. You have to be pulled along by your own curiosity, by your own attraction to something. I mean, we're pulled along by things, by actual things and people and interests and hobbies and music and all this kind of stuff that are the doors through which we touch the whole. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that really resonates with me too. I think that that's a really important point. And I mean, you mentioned the word disposition, 
and I would say that what this really shows is the existence of our freedom, right? Especially with the example of St. John Henry Newman's brother. Education is a process of being introduced into reality, but we can receive what we learn or we can reject it and we remain free in front of that. And I mean, I'm sure that as an educator, you have experienced the people in front of you that you're trying to teach remain free. I know, you know, for me that in my own life, there are countless times where I felt frustrated or hurt by the freedom of the person in front of me. And yet I always think this is essentially what God sees me do every single day. Um, And yet he's able to still see my freedom as positive and to love it. That's amazing to me because I've experienced the, the risk of freedom in education. Yeah. And I think it really hits you when you become a parent and when your kids get old enough to not listen to you or not to, you know, like now I see myself like, oh gosh, I want to give my kids all the advice that I wish I had gotten from my parents when I was their age, but they don't want to, <laughs> they don't necessarily want to hear it. And then I realized, wow, that was what my parents went through with me, mm-hmm. that the person has the freedom to say yes or to say no. So then the question is like, you're stuck but it's not, you're never stuck. It's then your freedom comes into play. If you're the one teaching in quotes, then your freedom comes into play of, Mm. okay, how do I take in this person in front of me? How do I change? You know, that's another thing that Jasani always used to talk about, right? Is that the object determines the method. Mm -hmm. So as a new assistant professor, I wanted to come in and teach classes. I wanted to impart to my students all the cool things that I learned in graduate school. And then I found out that they weren't that interested (laughs) or they didn't, (laughs) it wasn't getting through to them. Or so you can say, and people do, oh, they don't get it. They're not prepared, et cetera. Or you say to yourself, okay, what is this? What is this asking me to change, right? Mm. What is it that this person is interested in the first thing is to try and ask right ask try and understand what is the person interested in and how does that connect with what you have to propose the second thing is if you understand your own heart you understand that we're all ultimately interested in the same things but we're taking various paths to achieve them to find them to grasp them right Mm -hmm. and so So if I can connect to that, that fundamental interest, that is the interest of, I don't want to die. I want beauty. I want love. I I want the people around me to live forever. You know, if you can touch those things, then you have a possibility of also engaging with the person in front of you, quite apart from the basic interest of, does this person want to learn this material so they can get a good job? Well, then, yeah, I also have to do that too, <laughs> right? Yeah, that's really interesting. So to summarize what you're saying, methods for engaging with the freedom of, of another person in education is to, rather than impose knowledge or your particular coursework, instead to look at them, right? And to to see what they need and to see what their desires are, and to recognize that fundamentally we all have the same heart and we all have the same human nature. Yeah. And I think that you can't really do that effectively 
if you're not also sharing yourself mm. as well. That's why for me, it's so important to, to talk with students during office hours. I, you need to be able to share your own, your own self with that person to let them know that you're made of flesh and blood, that you have a, an openness toward them, that you have a, a positive outlook on them from the get-go. I think that you need that in order to also be able to, to communicate something to a person. Mm, yeah, the sharing of yourself. Education as a two-way street. That goes back to what you were saying, too, about the person who's being educated is free, but the educator is also free in that moment. I think this might be one way that this comprehensive model of education proposed by the church and echoed by Father Giussani really diverges from what we might otherwise encounter. I think not always, but too often, education might be reduced to something that is functional, a transactional imparting of information from one person to another. Would you agree with that? And what would you say are other ways that we can fall into a distortion or a reduction of education in the modern culture? Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. And I would say that there's this transactional mentality out there, and it's very dominant. But I would also say I, I know and have many colleagues who don't live by that. So I think that that's another thing to bear in mind, that, that we read a lot and hear a lot about the worst of education or the worst of higher education, but I'm around a lot of people who, who really do try and mm -hmm. do that. But yeah, I think that this is something I began to understand better when, I, when my own children started to go to school, that, that each person is its own universe and that there's no one-size-fits-all in education. And so often, the way that schools are organized, the, the emphasis is more on teaching the student to deal with constraints. So sitting at your desk, getting your homework in on time, reading what you've been told, etc. Then it is to enkindle in them curiosity mm -hmm. to learn. And I think this, this goes back to and I'm not an educational theorist, but I do think it goes back to this idea that education is meant to sort of homogenize us and not necessarily out of a bad desire because we live in a pluralistic mm -hmm. society and you, you need a certain amount of acculturation for people to be able to get along and for society to function. But it goes way beyond that and it becomes simply a trying to communicate a subject matter, and a series of behaviors. And as long as you do that, and the people, the students who are best at responding to those type of inputs are the ones who perform best oftentimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. At the end of the day, it just comes down to, I would say the theme is the reduction of the human person, right? Like you said, each person is his or her own universe. And I think that there's also a, a reduction, maybe, and again, acknowledging as you did that I've had many, many wonderful teachers and professors during my time in school and now too, especially um, in law school. But I think that in general, there's a peril of reducing knowledge to something external and maybe neutral is the right word or, or passive, maybe. I'm thinking about a quote from Pope Francis who 
was speaking to, I believe it was a conference of Catholic teachers, but he said that education either enriches our human life or it impoverishes it. Um, And that gives a lot of weight to the content of information that we're learning. You know, that's the opposite of it being neutral. Um, It either impoverishes our life or it enriches it. And I think that makes it clear that the stakes are really high. And you're not just teaching, you know, student, I don't know, a math formula or a historical fact, but rather opening up the world to the student through that particular lens. Yeah, I think it's true. It's because we're not neutral. Mm -hmm. We're a collection of good and bad, and we have reason, but we also have our affections, and we we care about justice, and we we're selfish. And so so there's never sort of a neutral how can I say you create a message and the person on the other end receiving it is never neutral. That person always has reactions and they should, mm-hmm. right? And so it's really important to understand that the abstract, which is oftentimes what we think that we're teaching when we teach anything, is delivered in a concrete vehicle. It's it's It always goes hand in hand with concrete things. Like... Uh, and I won't say whether this was from undergraduate or graduate school or what, but I've had professors who I thought had ideological differences and that we always thought that they didn't like each other because of their ideological viewpoints. Like one thought about this history this way and the other thought about history in that way. And then you get to know and you realize that they were they were fighting over a woman <laughs> that they had dated, for example. So... There's always this, so it was an affection problem. It wasn't an abstract principles problem between them, for example. So Pope Francis or you, you're absolutely right that when you educate, there's no neutrality going on. But that's different from saying that there's there's no such thing as reason, Mm -hmm. that there's no such thing as verifiable truth, for example, which is the other side of the coin. That's also the big thing that society is grappling with. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Complete subjectivity. Perhaps the greatest peril, even though we're talking about it last. <laughs> right. And subjectivity, once again, right? Subjectivity is because there's a subject. Each person is an individual that has its own way of looking at reality. But I'm not content with my own subjectivity. And we see this right now in the, in, in the pandemic, that so many of us are alone and aching to be in contact with others, or even just to do something, you know, silly like travel or what have you. It's because our own our own subjectivity, our own self isn't enough. It feels like a prison after a while, if it's just us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can definitely see that as a real difficulty of these days. You mentioned the pandemic. I did want to ask you about your experience of education during the pandemic without getting into the public health and policy issues, which are far beyond my expertise. (laughs) But I think it's obvious to everybody, myself as a layperson included, that the pandemic has been severely disrupting the education for the last year. And not just for students, but I know many teachers that have been really hit hard too. So what has been your experience of education during the pandemic? Especially, I think, what can be our signs for hope during this time? Yeah. Well, I think my experience as a professor and as a department chair have been interesting for a couple of reasons. One, 
To back up a little bit, I've taught online. I've taught online classes for many years. I've also taught in-person classes, as everybody does. So the switch to online to distance education wasn't such a big leap for me personally. But the first impact of the pandemic was helping, trying to find the most suitable ways to help your colleagues adapt and pivot to the circumstance. So not everybody was prepared. And so the question came down to, I'm good, I can deal with this kind of thing, but I have a moral responsibility to help to help my colleagues who may not. Mm. And so as a department chair, you have to look at the resources you have and, and try and do everything you can with those resources to help people ultimately help the students, you know, in their situation. So that was the first thing. And I have to say at our own university, the, the administration it was and is very supportive of that process. The second thing was it was very interesting to get a view into the, to the lives of many of our students, right? Because when you are teaching, whether it's online or, or in person, but particularly in person, people come into your classroom. And so you, you own that space for an hour or two hours or whatever it might be. And then you leave. They leave. But with the coronavirus situation, and when we're all on distance learning, everybody, at least in our context, you really get a window into students' lives. Mm -hmm. So for example, I had a, a student who hadn't checked in in a while, and I reached out to the person and found out that this person hadn't been able to check in because they were round the clock packing salads in a produce facility. And this is not unusual. Or to find out that it's hard for somebody to study because they share a bedroom with their grandmother or three or four other siblings and just there's no space to have a quiet place to study. And campus was that place or a coffee shop even, but you can't go in a coffee shop. So to understand not just that the pandemic has made things difficult for people, but that people have very difficult circumstances on a day-to-day -day basis. And the fact that they're in college, once again, I'm, I'm a college professor, is heroic. Mm -hmm. And so it, it sort of pushes you to try to recognize the, the privilege it is to, to be involved with these people and, and to provide education because we are tasked with that to educate people, to, to share what we have with someone else in a way that will benefit them. So yeah, that's been my experience. You know, and my experience as a parent, you know, that's also been very interesting because A, you get to see, you know, through distance education, you can see how other people teach, for example. And that can you can be full of admiration or or not. And you also get the experience of also seeing your own children being educated in real time and how they respond to different things. So it's been very eye-opening, but the, I'd say the greatest thing for me is it's been a chance to pause and to think about a lot of things that I hadn't thought very deeply about. So that has been the biggest takeaway from the pandemic for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really see the positive aspects in what you're saying, and they resonate with my experience too on the other end as a student, I think that one thing that has been emphasized is our common humanity because, you know, as we mentioned, we have the same human heart and the same desire. So we were always going through 
the same suffering and joys that just took different forms. But now they're all taking the same form. Really, our lives are reduced to something that each with our own circumstances, we're faced with the same difficulties. And and my experience of the pandemic in the classroom has really brought this out. It's a reminder of the fact that like we're all going through the same thing, just an expression of solidarity in those moments. And I find that it's so needed because one of the real difficulties for me has been that video conferences are just so dehumanizing. The whole complex human person that we've been talking about becomes a little picture on my screen. And it really, I think, has it makes it harder to love the person in front of you. You need these reminders that we're all the same and we all have these difficulties because I think it's really a challenge and, and a, an opportunity for growth, like a challenge in a positive sense, but certainly a challenge. Well, there's this whole continuum of, of reducing other people that the worst is probably, you know, like the Twitter feed where they're reduced to a few lines of text on your phone. Mm. And then there's, there's email where there's a little bit more of a, of a human dimension added. And then with video and sound, but even then it, it's still reduced. And so you see that to be in the, the physical presence of an actual human being is such a huge gift. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's been another takeaway from this whole thing is that a lot of people are realizing that, right? Yeah. A lot of people are like, I didn't realize what a gift it was to be around inconvenient and ugly and irascible people, right? It's something that we miss. that We didn't realize was a gift, and it really is. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Helping us recognize the other as gift and receive the other as gift. I think surely the next time I walk outside and um, we're able to smile at each other without masks, I will be infinitely more grateful for that human encounter because I recognize my need for that kind of interaction. Yeah, I was I was on campus the other day um, to go to my office, something that I've only done maybe three times since the, the pandemic hit. And I ran into one of my colleagues and we hadn't seen each other in over a year. And it was like, whoa, you know, it was just such an, a huge deal, you know, and how you been and all we wouldn't have had that reaction, I don't think, if, if we were back in a normal situation, just sort of passing each other in the hallway or whatever. So you, you're you just grateful. And then, then that's like a big event of your day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that way it can help us live reality more fully. And of course, we don't mean to diminish the real suffering that so many have been through, but rather recognize that the cross, you know, as we believe in our faith, the cross saves the world. The cross has meaning. The cross has beauty. It's not just a desperation of suffering. And so I think that these reflections on where we can see hope are really helpful. So yeah, thank you. Well, unfortunately, I think we are nearing the end of our time, although we could keep talking about this for another hour. So as we think about the themes that we've talked about today, education, relationship with reality and with the person in front of us about our freedom, reasons for hope amidst this suffering. Damien, I was wondering if you had a media recommendation to help us go deeper into these topics. Yeah. Talking about the things we've been talking about, I keep thinking it brought me back to that poem that is in the the recent book by Pope Francis, Let Us Dream, because it communicates 
better than many things I've seen, the experience of both pain and hope that we're going through right now. And in a way that it just sort of captures it all. So it's, it's Pope Francis's new book, Let Us Dream. It is by a Cuban actor and comedian named Alexis Valdez, who is, lives in Miami. And it's called Hope. And I believe it was really ri- originally written in Spanish. So the title is Esperanza. For me, it really encapsulates the possibility we have imagining that, um, you know, that there is light at the end of the tunnel to still take the time to make the best of this situation that we're in so that when we look back, we don't say, oh, I wish I had to live that better. Excellent. I have not read that poem, actually, so I'm looking forward to spending some time with it this week. For my suggestion in terms of our weekly challenge, it would be to pray through the examine, um, which is a prayer that you use to reflect on the reality that you lived just in the past 24 hours and ask yourself where God was working through your day and allow yourself to be changed by your day instead of just letting it pass you by. And so I think this ties in well with what you were saying about using this time well and what we were talking about, about education and our own education implicating our freedom. And I know for me, at least, it is so easy to use my freedom to ignore the moments that could otherwise have been really meaningful for my life and for my relationship with Christ. And so this is just one method of reflecting on your day that could be helpful in in making sure that 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 doesn't happen. And there are others, but that would be where my recommendation is. That's a good one. Well, Damien, we're so lucky that you joined us today. I will be reflecting on what you shared with us throughout the rest of the week. And I'm really grateful for your time. For our listeners, you know where to reach us. We can be found on our show's Instagram page or our show's email. We'd love to hear from you. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts. Please pray for us this week and we'll be praying for you as well. And we'll see you next week for another episode of The Pilgrim Soul.